Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Encounter Church. We're glad that you're with us this morning. I want to begin this morning with, uh, with just a quick heads up of next week, we start a, a very uh, important small group opportunity. It's called Financial Peace University. And uh, I love it. The tagline on this thing is like, debt is a thief, take back your life. And the reason why I wanted to like highlight some of that is just because um, how important it was to me. I went through this program uh, about 10 years ago now. So some updates have taken place since the time that dinosaurs roamed the earth. I get that. It's no longer offered on VHS, you know, and some other improvements along the way. But like a lot has changed and this program has been so important to, uh, to me and my wife as the two of us. It really helped us like get on the same page uh, together, which is just huge. And as well as uh, just the way that I relate uh, to money in a much more healthy kind of way. And I know it can do that for you too. So it's just, a, it's a tremendous, uh, deep, enriching opportunity. Check it out next week. You can sign up and learn more about it at encounterchurch.org slash events. All right, we are in part three of the series right now called Relentless, and it's a three or four part series based on the four chapters in the book of Jonah. So we're kind of working our way right through uh, that Old Testament book. And you didn't have to be a part of uh, installments one and two to like understand what's happening here in Jonah chapter three. Uh, we're going to kind of explain it along the way. Uh, but this story is an incredible one. It's about God's relentless, wholehearted commitment to us, a, a half hearted kind of people. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to open up the Bible. We're going, to, we're going to hear more about what makes, what goes into the anatomy of an effective witness. And so this morning we're talking about witnessing. We're talking about evangelism. And like I say that, and there's like a, a, certain, a certain number of you, which is most, I imagine, which just like this anxiety and stress like starts to, starts to creep up a little bit. And that's okay. Like you're in welcome company. Because some of us, it's like two things happen when we think about sharing our faith with somebody else, two things happen. Our palms get sweaty and our mind goes blank, right? You think about the last time you tried to share your faith with somebody and it just started talking. And looking back, you're going, I was saying words, but like they weren't making any sense at all. And I know that now. And there's a part of you maybe that wants to just leave that entirely to the professionals. And I guess I would be a professional because I'm on a, I'm on a stage with a microphone and I just want to caution you against that because I'm not any better at this than most of you are. Just as an example, I used to live downtown. It was this high-rise uh, apartment and I found out that my neighbor and I had a very similar work schedule and so we would we'd walk in together and, uh, and it took a long time to get to, our, to get to our front door. So we'd walk in the lobby together and we'd ride up the elevator together and then we'd walk down the hallway together to our doors, which are right next to each other. It was just, it was an incredible opportunity <laughs> for witnessing and evangelism. It's just the most awkward small talk this whole time. So I got to know him really well. You know, he finds out what kind of makes me tick and, and I got a chance to ask him about like his faith or, you know, whatever he believes in. And he was uh, he's agnostic, uh, atheist. He didn't believe in anything beyond what he could see, what he could touch, you know, the, the, the stuff that he could measure, which is a totally reasonable position uh, to have. You know, and I'm, try I'm trying to play it cool. Right? I'm trying to like, you know, all right, like just slow play this thing, kind of ease into it. No need to get all up in your face. And now he is calling me out. 
And he's going, Dirk, aren't you like a Christian? Yeah. And he's like, shouldn't you be? Don't you believe that you have the hope of eternal life? And you have like, you, you have this, this message, the greatest message that the world has ever heard. And, and don't you want me? Shouldn't you be doing everything you can possibly do to convince me to put my hope in Jesus? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, why are you doing that? So however bad you think you are at evangelism, at least you haven't been lectured about the importance of evangelism by your unbelieving neighbor. <laughs> and you're a pastor. Like, it's so bad, right? And, and compound that with the stories that we hear, right? You know, you hear stories about people who are like, yeah, I was sitting next to somebody on an airplane and we were just chatting and you're like, that's the first miracle. Who sits next to people and talks to them on an airplane? You know, we were just chatting and I shared my faith with them and that was like what they needed to hear that day. So they start, you know, like a like little tear of, of meaning and hope as they accept Christ and become a Christian and then somebody like three rows back, like he overhears what's happening and then all of a sudden they commit their life to Christ and now we're, we're all just crying in the aisle and then the flight attendant comes forward to see what's going on and then she becomes a Christian and commits her life. And you're, it's this whole like 737 revival happening at 30,000 feet. And you're going, yeah, that doesn't happen to me. This never happened to me. And chances are some of you are going like, I, I know the, the people in my life that I would love to have the hope of Jesus. And I just, I can't see that happening to any of them either. I mean, even if my friend was the one who was sitting in between the couple as, as they like talked about it on the plane, like there's no way that they would believe it just wouldn't ever, ever happen. And so we're going to talk about this morning, and we're going to do that in a way that I think is going to really pull back some of the anxiety that we have, some of the stress that we have over, over witnessing, over, over sharing our faith, evangelism, whatever you call it. And what I think is going to happen is this key phrase that I think is going to like line everything up for us, right? Just like, uh, just like a key going into a lock, it's just going to kind of line up those pins and it'll just drop right in. And I think it's really going to be helpful in your next opportunity to share your faith. And it comes right from Jonah chapter three. So first, first we're gonna hear the story and then I'm gonna give you kind of this key phrase that I think everything is gonna, is gonna line up. So Jonah chapter three, if you'd like to follow along in a paper Bible, those are underneath the chairs in front of you. And also the words are gonna be on the screen behind me. In Jonah chapter three, remember, it starts off after Jonah tried to run away from God. It takes place after the storm came and the, and the sailors threw Jonah overboard, after a big fish or a whale came and swallowed Jonah and he lived inside for three days. And then after he gets spit back up onto shore, we pick it up with Jonah chapter three. And it says, then in verse one, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And which is one of the things that I love about the Bible, like from a literary perspective, it's just what a masterpiece it is. Because halfway through here now in Jonah chapter three, we have like almost the exact same phrase as Jonah chapter one, that it starts off, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And now then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Like he gets a second opportunity to get this thing right. And, and you know, whether you follow Jesus your whole life for decades, or whether you're brand new to this thing entirely and you're here just because somebody offered to buy you lunch afterwards, like thank God for second chances and third and fourth and fifth. And so I just want to tell you that at any point in your life, if you're wondering, man, I have 
I have deviated and I have, I have strayed far away from the presence of God. I have been Jonah. I've gotten on that ship. I've been in that storm. I've been in that belly. If you've been in that place and you've wondered to yourself, can I come back? The answer is always yes. So we say, thank God for second chances. But at the same time, I want to like caveat that. And so that's like a step. That's not the whole thing. That's like halfway there. That's not all the way there. That's like half the gospel. And so we say things, thank God for second chances. But at the same time, we're going to need to do better than that. And so the example, the example that somebody gave me that I found was helpful is like if you've got a kindergartner and they're doing the best they can in school and they really want to please their teacher and do a really, really good job. And so they sit down to take the test. They open up the, the front cover and they see that this kindergartner has been, giving a, has been given a calculus exam. And there's no possible way this kid is going to pass this exam. So they do what they can to like fill in whatever answers they can. And the teacher grades it right in front of them and puts a giant red Sharpie F right on the front of it, right on the top of it. And the kid feels so bad. And then the teacher does something else. The teacher does something incredible. Takes that worksheet, takes that exam, and tears it up because that kid's getting a second chance. And isn't that incredible? And the kid feels so much better, right up until the point that he opens up the next exam, the second chance, and sees that it's the same calc exam. And I don't know about your kids, but my kindergartners are not passing a calculus test no matter how many times you administer it to them. He's just not going to pass it. And so for some of us, we say, like, thank God for second chances. But at the same time, we need something better than a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. And that's the other part of the gospel that's so incredibly important, that God doesn't just give us a second chance. He actually also gives us a perfect substitute. And that's what we celebrate around Christmas time, that God, in his, in his deep love and deep grace, in right sense of justice, he goes, listen, I have a test. I have an exam to give. This is what I demand. And I'm not watering it down. I'm not lowering it even this much. I demand perfection. I demand that you love your neighbor perfectly as much as God loves you. That's, that's what I expect out of you, my people. And you can open up that exam time after time, second, third, fourth chances. You're not passing. I'm not passing that exam. But out of God's deep love, he also says, I know that you don't just need a second chance. You need a perfect substitute. So I'm actually going to sit down in your little kindergartner desk and squeeze in there, and I'm going to take it for you. I'm going to be the right love for your neighbor that you can't be on your own. We need more than just a second chance. We need a perfect substitute, and we find that so completely, so holy in Jesus Christ, who passes that for us and then puts his righteousness and his goodness on us. It's incredible. It's incredible. Okay, this is Jonah, though. Second chance, it comes to him. Same message, verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Isn't it interesting how sometimes we can walk away from God? But then he calls us, right to the same place we were when we left. It's like God saying like, no, no, you weren't done learning. I still have something. I'm still showing you something there. 
And I'm not just going to let you like wander off and then like skip this lesson or skip this step. It's for you after all. So what we like to do, what I like to do, right? You know, you're walking with God. I'm walking with God. Everything is fine. Everything is perfect. Right up until the point when it gets hard. And then we start to drift. And I just kind of like go over here, right? And God goes over here and I go over here. And then I see the need of God in my life. And he, his relentless love calls me back. His wholehearted commitment calls me back. You know, and I want to come back here. And I'm just like, great. Okay, now I need you, God, again. I'm back. Let's get to work. And God says, I'm going to bring you to the place, the same place, when you said no the last time and give you an opportunity to say yes. I'm like, no, 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 God. There was some irreconcilable differences before, but, you know, we patched that up now. And God says, no, we're going to address that now. It's a little bit like this. Um, some of you have watched Seinfeld. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand, Seinfeld. That's fine. Um, some of you have seen the show a couple of times. Some of you a lot more than a couple of times. And like, you should talk to somebody about that. Uh, but there's an episode on there where uh, George, one of the characters, he just gets this idea in his head that he is going to tell off his boss. And so on a Friday afternoon before he heads out for the weekend, he just is like nuts to this and just like he lays into his boss, just all this stuff about that's pent up over, over the time that he's worked there, you know, and he's like, yeah, I'm done, that's it. And he walks out. Over the weekend, he kind of realized, I had kind of a good thing going there. I really should not have walked out like that. And so some of you have seen it, you're already laughing. You know what George does? He's like, well, I'll just show up on Monday. And so he does. He like goes to the conference meeting and just kind of slides in the back, you know, and sits quietly on time while everybody's chatting. And they're like, is that, is that George? Is that the guy who like told off the boss before he left last Friday or before the weekend? And he's like, what? no, I don't. And they come, they're like, you quit, man. And he's like, well, this just, we were just talking, you know, we just had some, saw things differently and we do that sometimes. No, like, let's get back to work. And it's like, no, you can't do that. You got to address the thing when you walked out the first time. And some of us, we do that with God and we're like, no, I'm just going to walk away. And God's like, okay, I'm going to pull you back. And then we're going to address the place where you said no last time. I'm going to give you this opportunity to say yes this time. And so for Jonah's case, it means, yeah, going to Nineveh. And he does this time. Listen, verse three, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, and this is, this is his message, beginning, middle, and end, don't miss it, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's a bad sermon. Like, I don't, it's harder than it looks, okay? So, like, I don't, I don't criticize a lot of people, I don't come down on them, but, like, objectively, this is a bad message. He didn't even have slides. Like, talk about phoning it in. Get a prop or something. Um, no, it's, it's, a, it's a bad message. And I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, but, but in all seriousness, it's what's bad about it is that he offers no hope. Like, he's doing the absolute minimum. We can see that. But the tragedy of it, the heresy of it, is that he offers no way out. He just announces some bad news, and then he's ready to move on. And, and I just hope that's never your experience, here or elsewhere. That a message of, from God 
always offers the hope of God, the love of God, the grace of God. Even in its judgment, even in its wrath, there's still hope and there's still grace every time. But Jonah offers none of that. Eight words, five in his language in Hebrew, and no hope. But something incredible happens. God is behind it. Verse five, the Ninevites, though, believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Forgive me if I just ask the simple question, why? Why would they believe a whole city, the, the king of the Assyrian Empire, why would they believe such a terrible message of, of Jonah. I mean, so first of all, a couple things. First of all, and I think maybe everything should probably flow out of this one. Like, we have no idea. Like, there's just, there's no human reason behind the whole thing of why they would believe. Like, I, we just don't get it. But if you start, if you step back, and this is what I love about like reading the Bible, you can kind of piece it together with some other evidence that we have. If you step back, you can start to see some pretty funky things, historical events that were happening at the time, which all, which God could have used to all conspire together to overthrow this city. And, and so I want to just highlight a couple of those. Um, number one, remember in the book of 2 Kings, we see that Jonah was a prophet in Israel during the time of Rehoboam II. Not important. You don't have to write that down. But what we do know is that Rehoboam II, he he was framed in a certain historical time period from this year to this year. And so we kind of, we have that time period that Jonah was likely a prophet to Israel during. And then we also have these other writings of the Assyrians. So outside of the Bible, totally different stuff. The writings of the Assyrians, because they kept good records, and they would start to write about some of these funky events that were happening, like these, like these revolts in some of their key cities, like Nineveh. They even talked about a plague that had hit. And they were talking of them and they were writing in their own literature, not the Bible again, but they're writing in their own literature and their annals uh, chronicling history. They would write about how they believed that these plagues were the result of some God's divine judgment during these years. And then at the same time, we kind of roll back the clock of the stars and the sun. We can see during this same couple year window that there was actually a solar eclipse. And so you can just imagine not really knowing how the stars and sun and all that sort of work, stuff works, but there's like revolts and there's plagues and you're already worried about some God judging you that you don't even know about. And then the sky goes dark. So that gets your attention. Not done yet, because this other guy, Jonah, and some fishermen are out on a beach somewhere throwing nets into the water and bringing it up again. When a whale beaches itself, starts coughing, spits up a dude. He's bleached white head to toe, and he doesn't say a word. He just starts walking directly towards the biggest city in the world at the time, Nineveh. And so the guys with the nets are like, well, I'm following him. <laughs> Let's see what that guy's doing. 
And so they just fall in line. And as he goes through these little villages, getting up to the bigger city center, everybody kind of sees this little following with this guy leading it who's not talking still, by the way. We don't have any record in the story about him saying anything. And they all just kind of fall in. So by the time he gets to Nineveh, he's got this entourage of all these villagers behind him were just waiting for him to give some kind of a message. He gets out to the center of the city, out front the palace, and finally the whole city now is like, who is this person? And he speaks, and for the first time, he says something, anything at all, and he just gives his eight-word, five-to-them message of 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown and sits down. That would have demanded the king's attention. So I'm just, I'm saying all of this to say, like, I kind of, I, I get it. I understand it. And that's not like a human way of reading this story as a way of writing God out of it. If anything, you hear a story like that and you're like, wow, did God orchestrate these events to bring about the overturning of this whole city? And now some of you have read the ending and are like, but was it overturned? I mean, did, did what was supposed to happen happen to the city? Listen, listen to the next line, okay? Verse 7. This is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. This is the king, okay? This is not Jonah. This is not a prophet. This is the Assyrian emperor, okay, the king. He says in Nineveh, by decrees of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals... Flocks or herds taste anything. We're all fasting, animals included. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. So the question is, was Nineveh, though, overthrown? And I'm just going to submit to you that the emperor of the Assyrian Empire is wearing the same clothes, sackcloth, as cows. That right there is an overthrown city. Not maybe in terms of like destruction or revolt or, or another people group came to judge them or something. Not in the traditional sense, but in the literal sense, overturning as we have turned upside down. You're looking at like cows wearing clothes, an emperor wearing sackcloth. You're going, no, 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 that thing has been turned upside down. God made good on this promise through a reluctant, obstinate prophet like Jonah and all of us. And the king continues, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Remember how much they love their violence. And who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn his fierce anger so that he, we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now we read this story and there's just so much to it. You could take this thing in such a dramatic, different number of turns, number of different ways. And I just want to come back down to this one thing that Jonah had to learn, this one lesson, this one key takeaway, this one thing for Jonah, and I think for all of us like him, half-hearted people, that he needed to get through his skull, that we all do too, sitting in the belly of a fish. He learned it. 
In Jonah chapter two last week, he learned salvation belongs to the Lord. That's it. That's everything. That's what he had to learn. And this is what I think. This is what I think. When, when we get that, like, like truly, when that message like seeps into the marrow of our bones, that salvation belongs to the Lord, it changes us. Because it, it has a couple of components to it. If salvation belongs to the Lord, that means, the good news, that means it doesn't depend on me or you. And like that's that part that just like falls into place. Like how, how freeing is that to know? Like salvation, it, it belongs to the Lord. It doesn't depend on me. And that, that is so entirely comforting. Like for, for Jonah, because he did a terrible job, but it's okay because ultimately salvation didn't belong to him, thank God. And sometimes you and I, were having conversations with people and we do a terrible job objectively, but thank goodness, salvation doesn't depend on me. It belongs to the Lord. I mean, I'll just be honest with you guys. Sometimes, like, I'll pour my heart out on stage, right? And I try to, like, give an accurate and convincing, like, the best possible representation of God and his love and his grace that I can possibly give. And sometimes, I really feel like it went well. Like, I remembered all my lines. I didn't get stuck. I think it kind of made sense, right? I I, I even hit all of the key takeaways, so the social media people are going to be happy that I actually said what I said that I said that I gave them earlier on in the week, right? Small group questions line up pretty well. I got those, and I walk off stage, and I'm like, I crushed this thing. We laughed. We cried. Lives must have been changed, right? And I'll walk down off stage, and I'll give my wife, like, the look, like, I crushed it, right? Like, I nailed this thing, you know? And she gives, she turns, and she gives me the same look as when I booked the Red Roof Inn Express and turns on the light, and she's like, no, it's fine. It's not fine, right? And then just, just to put the, the cherry on the train wreck cake at the end of the day, I'll check my email the next day on Monday, and some of you, someone, writes in and says, oh, that's just exactly what I needed. That was so perfect, so, so excellent, so well-delivered. And I'm like, that's great. This doesn't seem exactly what I was talking about, but I'm, like, I'm glad. Like, I must have said, I said a lot of things, right? Like, it was in there somewhere. And I'll, like, Facebook creep. Like, who is this person anyway? I don't recognize the name. And I see that that morning they checked into Encounter Community Church of Belding. And I'm like, well, that's disappointing, <laughs> That's not me at all. This is the wrong pastor, the wrong church entirely. God be praised, but it didn't happen here. And it's a humbling experience, to say the least. And I just, I come back to this line. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't depend on me. Sometimes I walk off and I'm like, that was 25 minutes, about 24 minutes too long. Like, it was not an accurate demonstration of my faith. I don't even know if I'm a Christian after having to listen to that myself. It was terrible. And of course, somebody says this thing. It changed everything for me. I just want to say thank you. And I can just hear God with a snicker in his voice whisper this in my ear, those five words, salvation belongs to the Lord. See, it's God-driven all the way through. You know, you, we're, we're, not, we're, not in the, we're not in the business of convincing skeptics to become believers, Right? We're not trying to, to, trying to persuade bad people to become good people. This is what we're up to. We're up to raising dead people to life again. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can do that. That's 
it. So every time, anytime you walk into one of these conversations and you don't know what to say, you can say these five words to yourself and say them with me now. Just say, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his. It doesn't depend on me. But sometimes he involves us. And that's part two. It's so wonderful when he involves us. You know, as a staff, we gather and we pray for, for you all and the cars that come in. And sometimes we have just the time of, of sharing, just storytelling about changed lives here at church. And more, and more Mondays than not, we walk away from this thing and go, man, I can't believe that God chooses to use people like us, people like Jonah. It doesn't depend on us, but it sure is awesome when God chooses to involve us. And he does. You know, this is going to be an insightful uh, comment. You know that it's going to be insightful when I set it up by saying it's going to be an insightful comment. The book of Acts is a collection of the Acts of the, uh, the first followers of Jesus. So after Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension to heaven, first followers were like, what do we do now? And the book of Acts just outlines what they did after that. And listen, they, tell, they told a phenomenal number of people about what they had seen in Jesus' death and resurrection. They told so many people. And the fun thing about Acts, this is the insightful comment. God always uses people to share his message. That was, that was the important part. That's the part that you're supposed to like write down and like, oh yeah, nice, no, no. And it's not that insightful, right? Because you know that already. You expect that already. But it isn't until you put yourself in the place of like being one of those people that God uses to tell somebody else. Presumably he could tell this message of Jesus any way that he wanted to. And most of the time we're like, yeah, no, you should send one of those like angels that are on fire with a sword or something like that, that's really going to get people's attention. But no, God says, listen, I'm, I can do it any way that I want, and I choose to send you. And we're shocked when he uses somebody like Jonah, and we're even more shocked when he uses somebody like us. It's a crazy story. There's a guy in one of the cities in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius. He's like a major or a captain, general. I don't really know my military rankings of the Roman army, but, but he's a higher up guy. And he gets this, this vision. This angel comes to him and says, hey, listen, seek out Peter. He's got all these answers for you. And he's got no idea who Peter is. But meanwhile, in the other side of the town, Peter is, ha- is in this trance and sees this, this vision of, an, of a blanket the sheets being handed down, coming down from heaven with all of these unclean, hooved, split-hooved animals like, like pigs and pork and whatever, like coming down. We call it in the church, we call it Peter's pig in a blanket dream. It, it comes down from heaven. And it's so important because God says, listen, you know, get up, kill, eat. Like this is, and he's like, no, no, I shouldn't do that. And God says, don't call anything, anything unclean that I made clean, which is important for actual like literal pigs in the blanket, but also it's important for Cornelius, the Roman, the guy outside of the family, the guy who's supposed to be unclean. It's important for people too. And all of this, get this, all of this is happening in this little town called Joppa, the very city that Jonah ran away to when he was trying to run away from God. And we like look at this whole story and go, even when we're trying to flee from the presence of God, 
He involves us in the saving of many lives. It's this incredible, incredible story. No, no, it, salvation, it belongs to the Lord. It doesn't depend on us, but it sure is amazing that it often involves us. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I, I think the change that it inspires in us, I think it makes us bold. I think it has to make you bold, right? It makes you bold in how you relate to the church. Not just like the church, but like the whole church. Not just the church as like a collection of bricks with a roof on the top of it, but the church as a movement. This salvation movement is from God, inspired by God, pulled along by God. That the church gathering here together, we're not, just, we're not just squished in here waiting on a movement of God. That the church, you are a movement of God. It is that incredible. It makes us bold with our invitations. You can invite people to come in because after salvation belongs to God. And here at Encounter Church, we have designed every single environment here with the first-time guests that you invite in mind. That's why we got the dudes with the vest in the parking lot because we want everybody coming up to know that we expect guests and we have a plan for them. That's why we put our, our greeters on the curb in a blizzard because it's like, listen, no, no, we're here for you. Come in these doors. We don't expect you know which doors to use every environment around here is geared towards the invite so you can be bold with those invitations that makes us bold with our prayers i think a lot of the time we we don't see god's movement more is because we just haven't asked so ask as uh, evangelist um tony evans his name is um he was uh, speaking at a rally one time and they had everything all in place the day of, except a storm looked like it was, it was rolling in. And they're predicting heavy rain, downpour, thunderstorms, etc. It looked bad. But they decided, hey, listen, instead of just canceling the event entirely, uh, let's just go as long as we can go. And then when it starts to thunderstorm for safety reasons, it's open air stadium. We'll just call it and everybody can go home. So he's out there, you know, and... and he decides, like, let's get the pastors together who are represented here. Let's get everybody together. Let's get these pastors together and let's pray. And so they're in this circle before he goes on to speak, and, and, they're, and they're praying. And he, and he said what struck him is that everybody was praying and offering up these, these neat little safe prayers. You know, they're praying things like, God, you know, the weather looks really crummy. You know, I'd love to be able to do this, you know, but if not, not my will, your will be done. Amen. And they're just like shy away from it. And one by one, like all the pastors around the group did this. And then he got to the end and he, and he said he heard Linda. And he's like, I have no idea who Linda was and how she got invited into this thing. But like Linda starts praying and, and, and she prays boldly. She prayed differently because she's out there and she's praying, and God, we've got people that need your hope that have not heard your gospel message yet, your grace and your love. And so God, Linda prayed, God, it would sure be ashamed if these people didn't get to hear about your love on account of the weather when you control the weather. So do something about the storm, would you? Amen. And they prayed and they like, look over at Linda. Okay. And they headed on out there. The plan is to go as long as they could. And, and Evans, he's up there. Tony Evans, he's up there. He's speaking. And he can look out over the crowd. 
And he can see the thunderheads roll in in the back. And he can see umbrellas, a couple of them here and there, start to pop up. But he goes, the storm, like split in half and went around the stadium. His plan was just to go as long as he could and then call it when it got too rough. It never got too rough. It never even rained outside of both sides of the stadium. And he's going, maybe, maybe we haven't seen the movement of God because we haven't prayed for the movement of God. You know, you've got somebody that you're thinking about that's like, I don't know. Even if they're on that plane where the revival is happening, I just can't see it happening for them. You were handed one of these cards, there's a spot, write their name down. Pray for them. Even if it doesn't seem like it'll ever work, it'll ever do anything, they're too far gone, pray for them. Boldly. Because after all, salvation belongs to the Lord. They just stand up. Let's pray together, church. Let's pray to the God of all salvation today. Jesus Christ, we thank you. We thank you for being the author of salvation. Not simply our salvation, but all salvation, God. Thank you for the free, for the freedom that it does not depend on us. And the humility that comes with knowing that you frequently choose to involve us. What a beautiful thing, God. God, whatever anxiety creeps in, whatever distractions creep in this week, when we have that person's name down, may we boldly lift them up before your throne. God, I pray that everything else just has this way of becoming background noise that fades so that, Jesus, only you and your salvation remains. In your name we pray. Amen.